Hello all, this is Zach Berger and this is Shalom's Bias, my quirky podcast where I talk to people about topics that interest me, about healthcare and other things. And today I have the great privilege to talk to Barbara Glickstein, who's a public health nurse, health policy expert and broadcast journalist. She's co-founder and co-director of the Center for Health Media and Policy at Hunter College at City University of New York. She also produces and hosts Health Cetera, a weekly program on public radio. She has been uh, involved with um, more than one media production and is um, the research researcher, media, and outreach strategist for Carolyn Jones Productions on two documentaries, The American Nurse and The Project Dying in America. She has trained a number of leaders in healthcare about how to be media makers in traditional and digital media to advance public health and public policy. And uh, thank you very much, Barbara, for taking the time to talk today. Great to be here, Zach. So tell me about how you got involved in media and public policy policy as a nurse, because what interests me is I talk to a lot of doctors about their um, media involvement, and there's a lot of fear and suspicion and ignorance out there in the doctor's community about, about media and social media and, and putting thoughts out there. And how did you get into it? And what do you tell your nursing colleagues about? Well, it's a fun story for me to share with your listeners. I was in nursing school at New York University uh, in the early 80s. I had returned to school to become a registered nurse after working in feminist women's health circles. And I've always been interested in media. I grew up in a, around a table, um, dinner table, where my parents uh, had delivered several daily newspapers when there were dailies in the morning and in the afternoon, and civics and policy and politics was a nightly conversation. So I feel like they've shaped a great deal of my interest as a jur in journalism and in national and foreign policy. So shout out to my parents for that. And when I was at NYU, I had a, a professor who is now, who was my mentor and now is a colleague and friend, Dr. Connie Vance. And it was a leadership course where we were told the first day of class that we could um, do a project for the semester that would show nursing leadership. And although I was not a filmmaker or had any formal training in video or film, I decided that I was going to make a documentary about nurse leaders in public policy and their influence on that. Um, truth be told, it was a talking head, poorly produced. I did the camera work and the interviews and the editing. Uh -huh. But um, it got me on the radio. Uh, it, uh, two nurse colleagues at that time found out about my project and interviewed me on the radio show that I now produce and uh, host because they were fascinated that a nurse was interested in policy and the three nurses that I did um, elevate the conversations about were very worthy of further media coverage. And that launched me over 30 years ago. Um, I do not have a formal degree in journalism. To um, I have taken classes and workshops, but I do not have a journalism degree. But I have always felt, um, certainly as a public health nurse in my graduate work uh, in public health and urban planning, that the role of media is critical uh, in every phase of our lives. Certainly it's the media, I believe, is, has its finger on the pulse of our culture. It has, uh, when it's done well, it helps to really inform the public. And um, I just see it very much as the platform for my public health practice now um, as, a, as very much a core of who I am as a practitioner 
my platforms and media are how I educate the public. Yeah, and that, that really has a lot in common with um, the contact I've had with nurses, which is the people in the clinical settings that I work in that have the most contact with patients and are there at the bedside and so have the most opportunity to interact with people on a person-to-person level, providing that education. Um, and so where oftentimes it's, at least in the hospital, in the clinic where I work, the doctor comes in and has the 15 minutes or the half an hour, it's the bulk of the time where the nurse spends caring for the patient and interacting with them and educating them. So it, that, I, that's something that um, really bring, and, and it sounds like there's a lot of commonality between educating the public on a broader scale and doing that work in, in, on the individual scale as well. It's absolutely, a, um, I, I'm aligned with your observation. And of course, you know, I, as you mentioned in my intro, thank you for that intro, um, I've been doing media training for nurses now and other healthcare providers um, for about 10 years, along with my colleague, Dr. Diana Mason, uh, through the Center for Health Media and Policy. And what we discover is um, a number of things. One, um, that nurses historically have not been the go-to for journalists on reporting on issues, although I do have to say there hasn't been a study since the late 70s looking at the um, exact number of hits, if you will, in the media that nurses have, both in uh, traditional media um, and, and or digital media. But we certainly know there's been an explosion of nurse media makers, whether it's through their um, very popular social media accounts on Twitter and Facebook, their blogs, and of course, uh, radio production and being interviewed um, in the media. I, it's a study that needs to be funded and done, and I'm, it's something I have on my burner to try and do. But what I do know from that is the word expert is not one that, um, just across the board, I'm making a big generalization uh, that nurses are used to using. And so I, the training that we do, we kind of broach what's the barrier to you being a media maker or contacting a journalist about a story that was done where you may have a frame that could be more helpful in educating the public. Um, and, and it's amazing just how in a brief three-hour or full-day workshop that when um, some of those people leave, some of those nurses specifically leave, they're really ready to start being uh, media ready and, and feel prepared because they've had some training. Um, nurses are both in the mainstream as educators in, you know, both as you said, in institutions where you work in the community in so many different roles and we're on the edges, I'd like to say, as well in communities as frontline um, healthcare providers and educators. So I do see a more visibility across the digital platforms and anecdotally I can say I remember the days in the 80s where a front page uh, above the fold article about a healthcare uh, story, a research or uh, an article, and there would be several people in the photographs, um, with all due respect, physicians were named and given a credit, and the right, people, right. mostly women who were standing with them, were unnamed and unidentified. That's changed. Yeah, right. Well, that's, well, that's, that's a good change. And, and you know, you're, you're mentioning, it comes to mind, that one, one thing that um, has unfortunately not changed so much in the past few decades is the outsized importance that that healthcare institutions place on these rankings, you know, hospital rankings. Yeah. Uh, for example, U.S. News and World Report, and you know, obviously, I work at Johns Hopkins, and and um, the rankings came out very recently, and 
although I think the rankings are not based on good evidence and assume, as I said, outsized importance, they're not things that matter to the great majority of patients. I do think it's some, sometimes a nice opportunity to talk about what matters in healthcare, right? What makes a hospital a good hospital? Exactly. And, and, and you know, know, for sure, there's been some well-written um, reports criticizing these rankings. Um, we know that there's also been criticism within the healthcare community, both nurses, physicians, and other healthcare providers within hospitals about pay, pay the design and uh, uh, analysis of patient satisfaction questionnaires, which often don't reflect really quality of care and encounters during stays, often are done weeks after discharge and are um, often not in real time, although I know I, uh, I attend uh, uh, information technology update conferences and workshops when I can, and I recently was at one here in New York City where um, a young uh, team were looking at immediate uh, real-time patient satisfaction questions that seem to reflect more about quality of care as well as environmental safety and sound and efficacy of treatment, et cetera, but it was in real time within 24 to 48 hours of discharge where I think you're capturing a real, a real picture of what mattered to people when we go home sometimes two, three, four weeks later, we're fixated on the bad meals with due respect to people who fill out these forms. Yeah, and so what, you know, I, I, I'm aware and your work has made me more aware of, of the great spectrum of healthcare and policy that nurses are involved in. But if I could just focus on hospitals for a minute, what what makes a hospital good for nurses? And uh, and I think that the obvious thing that comes to my mind is paying them well and enough, and 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 having them at the table and making decisions about how things are run. But you know, I know when when patients experience a hospital, one thing that they experience is how well the you know how well the nurses are treated and 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 how what what respect they have so i wonder what what your thoughts were about what makes a hospital good for nursing i would say the number one issue i hear from my nurse colleagues is the patient nurse ratio or the nurse patient ratio uh, we know that california has legislated that information there's a move here in the state that i live in in new york and nationally um, many of the nurses in the institutions that are uh, con their contracts are up and they're in negotiation. Although um, you know, no one's going to deny that uh, quality pay and benefits um, are critical to well-being and and being um, uh, uh, being an important issue for nurses, uh, clinical staff nurses and management. But really, what has become a very critical and important issue is being able to take care of the people that you're being asked to care for in the quality and abilities that you've been trained and educated to do when you're adequately supported. So this is, um, you know, for the language of our listeners, um, it's, it's also based on acuity or meaning the level of sickness of patients um, dependent on their needs. But in fact, most of the, um, really the top issue nationally that I hear and I think has been reported are the concerns that there's understaffing uh, in institutions, not all institutions, that are creating uh, situations where nurses feel they're not providing the top level care. Um, we know that I believe the institution you worked in is a magnet hospital, which is a status that is given to hospitals based on quality, um, measures that the American Nurses Association 
have instituted is a process that is very demanding uh, and rigorous. The question of uh, getting a magnet status for patients or people who are listening who are going to be hospitalized, that's something to look for um, in terms of quality and uh, patient nursing care. Um, but, in, but really, uh, Zach, that is the top issue in America right now. Does, does magnet status imply a, a given um, nurse-patient ratio? Yes, it does. And, but what, uh, what is some of the murmurs that I hear um, from uh, colleagues is once it's established that to be sure that those criteria are maintained um, until reevaluation and recertification as a magnet status. Um, I don't have those, uh, that data, those specific criteria at my fingertips at the moment, but people can look that up who are interested in magnet status and what it means around quality of nursing and, um, and staffing. That's a, that's a great point. And one thing I don't know is whether, and obviously you know that hospital compare has recently become available, and whether in various quality reporting metrics available online, whether nursing metrics are reported together with those. Um, I am not familiar with yeah. that, but it's a good thing for us to look at and, and be able to report back on. The, the thing that I recommend, you know, I probably like you, Zach, I get a lot of calls from friends and family members um, about a loved one in the hospital and what should they do. Right. And, you know, there are some things that we can talk about that would um, really help um, establish a better quality care and asking certain questions like, um, are you a registered nurse, uh, the person caring for you? Make sure you know their name. If it's a primary care relationship, how many days are they on, what shifts, and who will they also be uh, taking care of? Not exactly their names, but are they feeling as though there's enough staffing today? You know, we really, we support, each one of us can help support to make some of these changes happen. And often when I talk to nurses about uh, media training and trying to influence and impact policy and legislate change, it's really the grassroots movement of our communities, individuals, and families that can help support that. So helping them translate policy issues into relevant, um, understandable content for general listeners, the public, is a way for us to be able to really support moving forward what we know will make better health care available to all people. Certainly with the Affordable Care Act, there are more initiatives um, around safety and quality, uh, and we are moving more towards um, outpatient care and being preventive, being in a mode of prevention, but we know that um, it takes a while for these things to really materialize. We know some of those provisions in the ACA were not funded and are sitting on shelves for the moment, um, but we are in a time where I think um, slowly we certainly know what is it, 11 or 12 million more people in the United States are now covered by the Affordable Care Act and access to health care because of the Affordable Care Act, which isn't perfect, um, but in fact has, some, has had some very strong impact on access to care in America. Yeah, and I wonder how you, how you think the best way is to put nursing as a health policy issue before the public, because I feel like there's less discussion of that than there should be when in, in, in the lay media about what health system aspects need to be changed? Well, I would suggest that um, those who are listening who are nurses need to, um, you know, step up and step out and consider having a media training with us at the Center for Health Media and Policy. Um, if you are interested, of course, not everybody wants to be interviewed or in the media. It's not a 100% involvement. Um, it is a 
it is something you do need to make yourself available to. And what I would suggest is, you know, I, I often refer back to when the Affordable Care Act was uh, being debated in, uh, in Washington. And um, from a media perspective and as a health reporter, I think we got an F, uh, maybe, a, maybe a D, because it became a conversation about politics and not about the impact of what the ACA would mean for individuals, families, and communities. So, for uh -huh. example, back then I also teach at Hunter College, and some of my students were uninsured. Um, their parents did not, uh, were not able to continue to cover them because they were of a certain age. At that time it was, I believe, 21, and they couldn't afford their own health insurance, or they may have had very, very meager coverage as a mandatory requirement as a part-time student or full-time student. Well, the expansion of being able to cover it by your guardian or parent to the age of 26 was a policy issue that nurses could have continued to teach um, families and, and that age cohort so that they knew they could actually have access to health care. Um, in terms of uh, reproductive choice and reproductive access, there are still people who may not know, and nurses can educate them, about um, prevention screening and no um, co-payments. Insurance is really hard to understand. I mean, I'm it is really hard to understand. Yeah. I'm educated, and when I have to go through my own policy and figure out what's covered or not, it's time-consuming, and I know the language and I know the matter. So I would suggest there are many, many, many facets of what nurses can do to help uh, the general public understand policy implications, health policy implications, to engage the public to be more politically involved and also to understand what currently exists as their rights. I'm, I'm in the midst of helping um, looking into Medicaid managed care in New York State. Again, I'm pretty savvy. I know how to read this stuff. It's mind-blowing how complicated it is. This is where we can also be engaged and involved along with our other colleagues, maybe not to sit down for the three hours it needs, but certainly to direct people to resources um, that can help them around some of these issues. Uh, you know, nurses are very active in Washington. We have elected officials who are nurses. Um, and we, um, you know, the, the role of policy is being taught on undergraduate, graduate, and doctoral levels um, in nursing schools across the country. Speaking of issues that have systematic import and nurses' involvement in them, can you talk about how you got involved in the Dying in America Project and, and what role nurses play in end-of-life care improvement in our system? Well, thank you. It's one of my favorite new projects. I have to say each one that I do with Carolyn Jones Productions are just so well done. So there's a website I want to direct people to, dyinginamerica.org. There are 50 interviews of nurses across the country. There's a great um, word cloud that you can go to right away and figure out what's currently on your mind. Is it concerns about um, drug overdoses uh, or drug addiction at the end of life? Is it how do I talk to my loved one? There are many ways to enter into the website, including looking at the 50 images and clicking on one that feels like somebody you'd like to hear from. Um, I worked with Carolyn Jones Productions as the media uh, outreach strategist on her first full feature documentary, The American Nurse, which profiles five nurses in several different settings, one working with veterans, one in the prison population, one in the beginning of life, one at the end of life, and one who works in abject poverty in Appalachia in the United States. And the reason she did the film, uh, She's Not a Nurse, is her experience uh, investigating and producing a book called The American Nurse 
showed her, in addition to her own personal health um, experience, which she's public about, that she had no idea what nurses did. Yeah. Um, the breadth of what nurses do and the ways that they work with individuals and families was an eye-opener for her, and she wanted the rest of the world to know that better. Um, because of my work in media, we were connected, and the rest is history. The Dying in America Project is funded by the Jonas Foundation, um, which is a foundation that supports um, nursing leadership and education, the development of more uh, nurses who will be able avail available to teach in academia. And their interest was also in letting the public understand, as you said earlier in our interview, that nurses really are the 24-7 connector um, in healthcare and others as well, but we're at the bedside in those situations. And um, although it's a poll that, except for one year after 9-11, when firefighters were uh, given, the given the title of the most trusted profession, we know nurses are trusted. What my response to that is now let's up the game, step up on that platform of trust, and help Americans and people globally better understand our expertise and our breadth of helping you through on stages of your life, whether it's the incredible life-changing moment of birth all the way through the life cycle to dying. Uh, nurses have an involvement in every phase of that life cycle, and their expertise and their ability to help you manage those moments and support you through those moments is, my, um, is why I do media and nursing. That's great. Now, if there were one, just to put you on the spot, if there were one health policy change around end of life, which nursing could contribute to advocacy to or, or, or th thinks is most important, you know, to overgeneralize. I know it's a vast profession with a sure. uh, uh, significant spectrum of involvement, but what would that thing be that nursing would, would emphasize or try to bring to the table? Well, one thing I know, and it's really uneven in institutions, so I'm going to say this knowing that, but um, you understand the world of medicine and healthcare, where there are lots of um, silos and departments and yeah. um, and and turf. I'm going to use that yep. um, ex that that phrase. And so there are many times where um, a nurse caring for someone who is dying, although that word dying has not been uttered by the clinical team yet, and I'll say physicians where the family is still believing that that sixth clinical trial may in fact be the one that will save their loved one. Mm -hmm. um, that it is, in, again, in some institutions, um, nurses are not um, permitted to or encouraged to start that conversation. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, the policy would be institutional policy, but, and again, I know that in some institutions, referrals to palliative care and hospice or pain teams um, can be done by anyone, but there are still um, cultural barriers uh, in some institutions where that's seen as not in the proof of the clinical expertise of a nurse or a clinical nurse specialist. And I believe that that barrier removal or that addressing that cultural uh, no longer workable barrier would benefit everyone, the, certainly the individual and families, certainly the entire healthcare team. And I think we're moving in that direction. Certainly, um, not only the dyinginamerica.org website addresses some of this and ways to help people in the dying process, 
Well, we, we've seen a shift in the last five years, and I, I know that you contribute to that conversation in your writings as well as in the way that you take care of patients and families. Thank you. Yeah, so one, one thing I'm involved with is, the, is our ethics consultation service here at Johns Hopkins, and I can tell you that often the calls we get are from nurses who realize that a patient is actively dying or where there's moral distress around care for the patient because they realize with their constant contact with the patient there's a great deal of suffering that the clinical team realizes but maybe add a remove or, or you know, considering the trees and, 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 not, and not the forest, right? So there's, there's a way in which their closeness with the patient, nurses' closeness with the patient enables them to see things that other people don't see and bringing that to the fore, I think, is a really important contribution to be made in end-of-life care or in so many other realms of care. Absolutely. And we do know, again, um, to, in, in, in great respect for my um, physician colleagues, uh, a recent study by um, uh, Hartford Foundation re uh, reflected that, in fact, um, even with our this past January 2016, Another advancement of the Affordable Care Act is that uh, for patients who are insured by Medicare, there is a, um, a visit with your uh, practitioner, your physician provider, your primary care doctor, where, uh, where you can discuss some of these end-of-life uh, uh, end issues. And, um, you know, that was originally, uh, unfortunately, um, removed from the Affordable Care Act when we can, we can go back and just refer to the fact that it was... Um, politicized as death panels, and now we have that in, uh, available it, it just since January 2016. Having said that, this study that was recently published by the New England, by um, Hartford Foundation uh, reflected that most physicians feel inadequate to have that conversation um, and would seek out and would actually like more training, something they felt they had never adequately had. So some of this is part of the cultural shift that's going on, and um, and and thank goodness. Um, and again, you know, every, it, these are not easy conversations. By no means do I suggest they are for anyone involved. Uh, none of us, with all the preparation of advanced care plans, of um, healthcare proxies, until we're in that moment, we really don't know how we're going to respond and we may change our mind, which is also a beautiful thing to be able to change our mind about things. But the point is to have the conversations and nursing uh, as well as all members of the team and we're, we're moving towards a better interdisciplinary approach to all care. When all of us feel competent to have the conversation, these are skills. Some of us come with the skill, others need the skills development this will become something that will be easier and all of us will be better prepared, um, whether we're facing death ourselves or we're helping others who uh, is someone who is facing death and their loved ones um, make good decisions. And I think it's great to hear of all the possibility that exists to improve these conversations in end-of-life care and in other aspects of care, um, thanks to the increasing involvement of nurses thanks to you in the public policy and in the media sphere so um, you know I want to I could discuss these issues with you for much more time and I want to thank you for giving of your time um, today Barbara it's been great to have you today and uh, and I want to refer people to that site again that you mentioned that's dyinginamerica.org yes and our site 
website is healthmediapolicy.com. Healthmediapolicy.com. And uh, thank you very much, Barbara Glickstein, and I uh, look forward to speaking to you on another occasion. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.